0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah
1: study.
2: We're going to look at Kitavo this morning. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 26, and we're going to look at verse 12. Verse
3: 12.
2: Welcome back, Richard. Dana, we're glad you're able to make it because it's a school holiday. I'm
0: sorry, 26 what?
3: 12.
2: We are looking at the instruction for the folk who are going to cross into the land and that they are going to take from their produce and they are going to share it with those who are most likely to be in danger of not having enough food and of not having ways to acquire more food. And that would be whom?
3: The widow, orphan,
2: the, widow the orphan, the stranger, because they don't have a protective patriarch. Right, That's who provides the food, is the patriarch. And sons, often. Uh, so the widow doesn't have... A male protector, the orphan doesn't have a male protector, and the stranger doesn't have a connection to a clan that has a patriarch who can intervene on their it behalf.
4: says the fatherless rather than the orphan.
2: Correct, because that's what it means. It doesn't mean orphan the way we think of orphan. Orphan here means who doesn't have a male protector. Because if you have a mother in the ancient world and you're an orphan without a father. It,
4: <laughs> the Levites didn't have land. They had to be included.
2: Correct. The Levites are included because they don't have produce. They're never going to have you know, produce of their own because they don't get a portion of the land. They are dependent on the rest of the Israelites to provide for them. And so they. it's a form of taxation, right? This is a form of... Taxation, so that there is welfare, so that people who are living in the land don't fall below a certain place, that no human being is supposed to fall below a certain threshold in ancient Israel, and that is expressive of a just society, of being a holy people, that everybody has a right to have enough to eat, and everybody has a right to shelter at night. We have a lot to go back So, if
5: we're founded upon those principles. Yes. What
2: happened? To whom?
5: (laughs) To society. To us?
2: Yeah. What happened? Some would argue capitalism happened. Some would argue that if I'm looking to maximize my profits, it by definition means I need to make sure somebody else has less. I mean, I'm trying to take more of the pie. I don't think it's just capitalism. I think it's, I think it's it's heinously obvious in our Western capitalist capitalist model, the discrepancy between rich and poor that is growing is horrifying to many of us. But I think the natural human tendency. Why, why does this have to be here?
5: Because our tendency is to
2: exactly right. Um, so this had to be legislated. 3,000 years ago, because we haven't changed all that much. I mean, it's easy to say, wow, once upon a time, look what they did. Well, they wrote those laws the same way we write laws to say, you have to pay the IRS, because everybody's trying to figure out how not to pay the IRS. And ancient Israel was no different, that this is written and legislated because the tendency, of course, is to not want to share what we have. I worked hard for what I have. What does Shmulek do? Nothing. And I'm supposed to support that? And Shmuelik's six children? Really? So that's... That has not changed, unfortunately. Well, if you look at some countries, they do a lot better than we do at this idea, right? And I think of... Well, I shouldn't name them, but there are countries where, you know, they understand that for them to enjoy what they have, they want an equitable society, and then they can relax in what they have. And their happiness is not dictated or their sense of success is not dictated by my house being bigger than everybody else's. They're comfortable living in the same size home that everybody should be living in or apartment that everyone should be living in. And if we all have about, if we all have enough, then we can all rejoice in what we have place halavai we should get there ourselves as a country all right so let's look you're going to take care of the stranger and the widow and the orphan let's read at verse 12 when you have set
0: aside in the full in full the tenth part of your year in the third year the year of the tithe and have given it to the levite the stranger the fatherless and the widow that they may eat their fill in your settlements you shall declare before the lord your god I have cleared out the consecrated portion from the house, and I have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, just as you commanded me. I have neither transgressed nor neglected any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while in mourning. I have not cleared out any of it while I was impure, and I have not deposited any of it with the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done just as you commanded me. Look down from your holy abode from heaven and bless your people Israel and the soil you have given us a land flowing with milk and honey, as you swore to our fathers.
2: So we have this ritual laid out for us about tithing. There are lots of rabbinic discussions about what does this mean in the third year, and I won't go into great detail. <laughs> Sorry, I was, Pam. I was going to ask. It, it's it's unclear because. Tithes are given supposedly every year, so why would it say in the third year? Um, some people suggest that the first uh, is that the phrase reflects the farmer's perspective that only the third year is a tithe year because only in that year must he give the tithe away, whereas in the first two years he keeps it and personally consumes it at the temple. It's one option. Like sharing it with priests, but you're eating your family, your clan is eating it at the temple. You have to bring it, but you eat it as a sacred meal. Kind of hanging out with God. Right? We've had that conversation about eating with God. Um, hence only only this year is a tithe in the farmer's consciousness. That's one possibility. The second suggestion by Hoffman is that the phrase means that is every third year of the years in which tithe is given. Since tithes are not given in the seventh year of a sabbatical cycle, four years elapse between the second poor tithe of one sabbatical cycle and the first poor tithe of the next cycle. And the phrase means to correct the impression that the third year means exactly every three years. I hope that's clear.
5: (laughs) Sorry
2: I asked. Right? Clear as mud, yes? So there's some, because it doesn't seem to make much sense. So we don't know exactly what it means. So when you've set it aside and you have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat their fill in your settlements, you're going to do this business of kind of swearing something. You're going to swear. What are you going to swear? And we get the actual words. This is very rare in Torah. It's very rare that we get liturgy in Torah. And we have the Psalms. We draw from the Psalms for liturgy. The rabbis did when they created the prayer book. But this is biblical. What an Israelite was supposed to say as a piece of liturgy. We rarely see this in Torah. What are they supposed to say when they bring the tithe? So I've cleared out the consecrated portion from the house, meaning all of it. Everything I was supposed to to. Give is out of my house. Nothing's hiding in the pantry in the garage. Everything that was supposed to come out is out. And I have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, just as you commanded me. I have neither transgressed nor neglected any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while in mourning. I have not cleared out any of it while I was unclean. All of this makes sense. You want to give something that's been... There were rules around when you're going to dedicate something to be a gift, now it's dedicated for godly purposes, for holy purposes, There's, it becomes taboo on some levels. You, you can't engage with it while you're in a state of ritual impurity. That makes total sense. And when you're mourning, presumably, it's a, another state of otherness. I've not deposited any of it with the dead. I didn't take any of what was supposed to feed the living And give it as an offering to help the spirits of the dead do whatever it is they believe they were helping them do. Right? We have attestations of this happening uh, in uh, some Jews in the second temple times. And later we're doing this still. This idea of the spirits that are in shale and you're helping them somehow with this donation of food at the grave. So... We have this promise that I've not eaten of it in a state that was not appropriate. I've not used any of it for the dead. I've obeyed Adonai, my God, and I've done just as you have commanded me. Look down from your holy abode from heaven and bless your people, Israel, and the soil you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey as you swore to our fathers. So tell me what you think. Tell me what you think about this. What does this tell us?
5: I think this set in motion all the many wonderful agencies the Jewish community always has, like Cedric and uh, places for rehab for the whole community. Uh, adoption uh, to home
4: placement.
3: And on,
2: and on and on So what I hear you saying is that for you, this impulse to take care of people who are vulnerable has stayed present as part of Jewish peoplehood. Yes. That we still have agencies and are committed to creating agencies yes. that help people who are the most vulnerable or the most in need. Mazan. Mazon, right? Lots of... Lots of wonderful Jewish institutions to feed people. And
5: right here, we're collecting food for the needy.
2: Right, 80,000 pounds last year we collected as a community for feeding those who are hungry.
0: I have a question as to why the person needs to say this and to whom is it, it is addressed. Who does Ob- it? Well, obviously right. it's not God <laughs> because God the <laughs> all-knowing knows all this stuff so it's not like someone is informing God. It, it sounds to me almost like a vow. We were talking about vows mm-hmm. last week. But I mean, it's not it, its not even in the, it doesn't say in the presence of a priest. It's like you not only have to do it but then somehow you have to, from the very depth of you, recognize and declare that you've done
6: it.
3: Well, like Maybe to yourself. Like sure. your so you're testing that you put down everything that you were
6: supposed to put down <laughs> you have to the barricade that everything's true and you're putting your name on
2: it. And who so it is attested, presumably in front of someone.
4: Well who is speaking here?
2: The Israelite farmer.
4: Who did it? Who gave this stuff? No, no, who is uh, Commanding,
2: Commanding Moses. Moses. Say Moshe. Moses, on, Moses on behalf okay. of God.
3: Okay. Yes. Was, this morning when I read it, it talked about um, Moses and his fellow leaders or something were telling the people uh-huh. these
2: messages. Correct. So Moshe is instructing the people. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's Moshe's final set of instructions to the people. Richard has brought up the attestation that that we sign on our tax forms. I promise that everything I've said here is true, that everything I owe the IRS I have put down as owing, everything I say I'm exempt from I am, in fact, exempt from. And what does that do, Richard? W- why do I sign that? Obviously I'm not going to turn in an illegal fraudulent claim, right? Bert's saying, well, duh. Like, why would I turn in a fraudulent claim? Why do I have to sign something saying that everything I just filled in is true?
0: Assuming God knows
2: everything. Assuming
0: the... Which the IRS doesn't.
2: Well, God... But we we often say we confess before God. And we're going to get to confess. So God knows. So why do we bother confessing? It's a similar question. Right, Richard? Why do we do that?
6: uh, Well, perhaps... um, Perhaps it's to... Essentially, to remind ourselves of our remind ourselves of
2: our civic duty. To remind ourselves of our duty. So, by saying this out loud, I'm reminding myself that I have an obligation. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're, you're liable at that point. You're liable at that point. So, what changes between me filling out the tax form and me signing that I swear it's all true? Well, I don't know. I'm now liable in a different way. So if I just file fraudulent tax forms, that's okay. But if I sign a statement that says, I promise it's all true, now I'm liable?
3: I would say so, yes. Legally,
6: I would say, yeah. Legally, there's
2: a difference between the fraudulent tax form and my now lying about having told the truth. Well,
3: there are consequences if you don't.
2: There are consequences if you don't. In
3: the message they've told us, the consequences if you don't. That it's almost like you know, with a tax return, it's if you get caught, and it's probably not a person that doesn't ask themselves, Can I should I declare this or no? Is it what's you know, what's moral up to a fine line of when it's not moral or ethical anymore?
2: Laura, for me, brings
1: up the whole question of why we pray at all, which is Anna, mm-hmm. talking about with our. Raised in a in foster daughter. our foster daughter was raised in a Catholic home. She prays every night, Armi Shabera, basically. Her aunt, we said, her mother, and she said to me, "I just all of a sudden thought, who am I talking to? I don't think God's not like—is God a guy? They're listening, and if not, why am I? What difference does it make?" And so here I know we're, maybe we're thinking, you know, we're at the the understanding of, yes, God is listening. Yes, God does hear. But is it because it it confirms for us something? It strengthens our resolve? It strengthens our focus about whatever it is we're saying? So by saying these words, is it that you're committing yourself? You're reminding yourself, I am doing all these things. It is important that I do it in all these ways. And it doesn't have anything to do with the person on the receipt.
2: So what I hear you saying is that this is a reminder to the Israelite that they say out loud that I'm fully in. I opt in fully to a society and a system that says it is a just and equitable, holy people-ish thing to do to give what I'm about to give.
6: Isn't it like saying
2: the Pledge of Allegiance down The Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge my loyalty to...
6: say it individually right Uh, but so to some extent we're we're uh, we're saying in front of other people that you know that there are certain things we believe and that we are sort of happy to participate within the group of people who have similar beliefs alright so
2: let's hold that idea of happy I was
3: thinking maybe it's sort of a personal checklist you think you did it but
2: I'm double-checking. Did I eat it in morning? No. Did I eat it, right, in an impure state? No. So a checklist to review and make sure. Okay? Margo? Your original question was, who are we saying
3: this to?
2: That was not my original question, but I'm happy to entertain that question. What is this about? (laughs) Right. That was Bert's question, but go ahead. Don't blame her.
0: Whenever I
3: heard that, and whoever said it, um, I was thinking
2: it's
3: more like, "Who am I saying this for?" Because I think we're saying it for ourselves, and that sort of a you know, went down and persist-
2: So, what's the point? Why do we? Why do we need to do this? And I hear you saying, "Because we we need it."
3: Well, yes, and also that
0: we promise, we know that we've made a promise.
3: Really to break that promise.
2: So by saying I promise that it's all this, then I'm really going to be sure that that's the case, because I don't want to break that once I've said it out loud, David.
4: I, I suppose that if, if Moses wanted this to be legally binding, it would have been written, and you shall come before the community and swear to your God that you've done it, and they didn't write it. They wrote it that said, you're going to say this to yourself. No, oh, it says no, before, it says your say God, before God. You shall declare you shall before,
2: before Adonai your God.
4: Not before the community. Correct. But if you if you have done the task but haven't made the oath, it probably there probably wouldn't be some kind of consequence to that. Except, so that's why I think that it's probably to be a, an additional reminder to yourself, not so much there's a consequence for not doing it. I mean, for not
2: making So it changes, like Robert said and Richard said, it changes the liability. In the ancient world, once you swear an oath, yeah. you have changed the stakes. You have now triggered the alarm system that if that beam is broken, terrible, terrible things happen. You've now armed the system. You've armed reality. And if you breach that reality, whoop, 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 terrible, terrible things happen.
6: But you were were asking, what's the liturgical purpose of this? And I think, actually, the liturgical purpose comes at the very end of the statement, which is to basically... I've done everything that I was supposed to do. Now you, okay, I kept my end of the bargain. You're supposed to remember to keep the good stuff coming.
2: And what is the implication of I've done what I'm supposed to do, now you bless the soil and bless us? What is the implication of that? It's a breet. It's a breet.
0: Mutual mutuality.
2: Mutuality, meaning I don't deserve. Fertile soil or many children unless and until I give. That for me is a remarkable fact about this. The orientation of this is. So bless us from your holy abode. And your people. And the soil. As you swore to our fathers. It doesn't start with that. If you bless us and blah, 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 I will give. Right? Next year, a tenth of the yield. It starts with, I understand that it is my obligation to care for the stranger, the widow, and the orphan. I have done that. Now, I am worthy of fruitful soil and fruitful self and our people is worthy, and our land is worthy. What if that was our orientation to reality? Because I have given to the homeless shelter, to the OCPP, because I have given to my generously, because I've, given, because I've given, because I've given, because I've given, let me have a good year this year. Let, let me have an abundant year this year. We started with that understanding that to be an Am Kadosh, to be deserving of abundance, starts with, I understand and have cared for those who do not have.
4: But does this have the same dignity of just giving without making this statement? Because I doubt if many people in any time ever make the statement. They give their charitable. And they've done the work. They've done the deed. I'm not sure I understand
2: what the consequences are. We certainly have a different understanding of what the consequences are, and yet we still tag this thing onto our tax forms that says, I swear it's all true. I swear this is all true. What we don't say out loud is, now that I have given to all these organizations... Now I know that, uh, now now I believe I can ask in return for abundance for myself. We don't say that, and yet, pay attention to the Machzor, this Rosh Hashanah, and this Yom Kippur. Pay attention. Where do we say how and why and under what circumstances we deserve a healthy and happy new year? Pay attention. Liturgically? So we are going to say stuff liturgically in front of each other, aren't we? We're about to say a bunch of stuff. Some people complain about how much stuff we say because it's too long. The services are too long. You know, my daughter, they're so boring. So we could argue about how effective it is, but we're about to spend a lot of time together saying a bunch of stuff and singing a bunch of stuff that is liturgically our understanding of what it means to start a new year. So just look at it and see see what you think, David. Could it be
5: also there's an exposure to criticism from the community for...
2: How is it an exposure to criticism? Well,
5: because if you say what you're giving what you're giving, there's a behavior where you are at home and what you give. People know. The neighbors are around. They know. People happen, You know, whether you give $500 or $10,000 and what you understand what the capacity of each person but when you... Given when you spell it out in public what you've done there's a certain amount of exposure
2: S- no? okay so this is before the Levite they're swearing before the Levite to whom they bring it as and they're talking to God I have brought everything I was supposed to bring does that expose me? it certainly exposes that I am claiming in pretty severe circumstances, I am claiming that I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Does that expose me? Okay. We, we can think about what What does that expose. It certainly exposes that I believe that's an important thing to do. It's interesting. None of this is about feeling.
0: really the
4: beginning in the sense that you're really going to be preparing to ask God to bless you with good crops for the following year. You're not allowed to ask God for that until you've done the task, and only then can
2: you. Correct. That's what I'm suggesting. Is it that's that's the beauty? That's the beauty of this. That's the beauty for me. Is is that it starts there, Lynn? As we've discussed before, when we
1: come into a land, there are already people there, and they have their practices. So my question is. What was the order of things in the land when they would make their sacrifices and offerings to their idols? Was it to hope for a a fruitful upcoming planting season or to thank for the previous planting season? And how did this adapt from
2: that? It's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. How does this differ from pagan practices around fertility, around the fertility of the soil and the people and the animals? In very broad terms, I'm not going to pretend that I know a whole lot and or that, that it's not much more nuanced. In very broad terms, pagan ritual was about how do I activate the cycle that happens every single year? I want to activate that and that means I have to do certain things, certain rituals that will help right the fertility cycle kick in. And that that's about keeping that wheel going. Jewish ritual, Israelite ritual, part of the innovation of that is that it's not simply a spiral. It's a spiral that's moving towards something. Right? So so I am I am trying to influence God for sure, there is a mutual accountability factor in Breit, the idea of covenant about justice that is not there in pagan religion, which is about functionaries triggering the natural cycles of things, meaning what I do down here is matched by the other realm. So intercourse here sacred intercourse in the temple would trigger intercourse on the higher levels that results in pregnancy. Fertility. That makes sense if you're trying to trigger something. You want to do down here what you want to have happen in the supernal realms. Also, pagan gods could be capricious. So you're trying to please the god by giving them of the fruit so that Right, so you, so you appease them so there's still obviously a lot of all of that here, they're, they're not coming from nothing, they're coming from pagan, Canaanite religious practice, the Israelite reconstruction of that is that what triggers God to be gracious and therefore the fertile, the soil to be fertile and me to be fertile is justice that's new that I care for, that I act as responsible for other people, that is a breed. Now there's mutual obligation, and God is obligated to make the soil fruitful because God demands of us justice. And God has promised that God will bind God's self to that breed out of love. That is opposite of capricious gods who say, what I want is some of your meat. And then maybe I'll be nice to you. It's a, The new Israelite idea on the scene is if you're nice to Dana, who doesn't have, if you share with her, now I'm going to be responsive to you differently because you have behaved in a just and holy manner. That's the Reconstructionist idea on the scene. Mickey?
4: In, in performing our responsibilities and asking God for a good year, We want to be sure we have good years so we continue our responsibilities.
2: When we are our best selves, I couldn't agree more, Mickey. That when we're our best selves, we hope for an abundant year so that we can give again and more. And Torah doesn't seem to care. To your question, we don't care. Whether people are doing it for that, or they're doing it for this, or they're doing it because they're going to be exposed if they don't, or because they swore that they were gonna, so they didn't. We don't really care. Write the check. Just write the check. If you do that with an abundant and glad heart, wonderful. If you do it just because you're supposed to, and you know you're part of a holy people that has an idea of justice built into it, and that's how you live into your agreement with the universe, terrific, do that too. Just write your check.
3: You know, at this time of year, when we're asking to be written in the book of life, I think it's a very valid question that God would say, well, what did you do with the year of life I just gave you? You know.
2: What'd you do with the harvest? Why
3: should I give you another year? What'd you do with that year of
2: life? And right after Yom Kippur comes... Sukkot, I just cleaned everything up for you people who messed up again, a lot. I just cleaned it up. Salachti kidvarecha. I have forgiven according to your words. Now you're going to have a harvest at Sukkot. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with your abundance? You Israelites who continue to mess up every year, and I forgive you every year for the same stuff.
4: Yeah, there's life, there's hope. Where there's
2: life, there's hope, says Blanche, because we can always do teshuvah, we can always do repentance. So we're going to look at tying those ideas together. Let's go just a little bit further. Verse 16.
5: Your God, Adonai, commands you this day to observe these laws and rules. Observe them faithfully with all your heart and soul. You have affirmed this day that Adonai is your God, in whose ways you will walk, whose laws and commandments and rules you will observe, and whom you will obey. And Adonai has affirmed this day that you are, as promised, God's treasured people who shall observe all the divine commandments, And that God will set you in fame and renown and glory, high above all the nations that God has made, and that you shall be, as promised, a holy people to your God, Adonai.
2: Go on. Sorry.
5: Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Observe all the instruction that I have joined upon you this day. As soon as you have crossed the Jordan into the land that your God, Adonai, is giving you, You shall set up large stones, coat them with plaster, and inscribe upon them all the words of this teaching. When you cross over to enter the land that your God Adonai is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as Adonai, the God of your ancestors, promised you, upon crossing the Jordan, you shall set up these stones, about which I charge you this day, on Mount Ebal, and coat them with plaster." There, too, you shall build an altar to your God, Adonai, an altar of stones. Do not wield an iron tool over them. You must build the altar of your God, Adonai, of unhewn stones. You shall offer on it burnt offerings to your God, Adonai, and you shall sacrifice there offerings of well-being and eat them, rejoicing before your God, Adonai. And on those stones you shall inscribe every word of this teaching most distinctly.
2: Okay. Interesting set of instructions. I love the liturgy at verse 9. I'm tempted to use it in Shul. Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Silence! Hear, O Israel! We'll see how that goes over.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Alright, all right. silence, you Israelites. We get this interesting commandment to set up these stones. We'll see how far we get. We'll see if we get all the way to that. First, I want to look at uh, this piece by Rabbi Joseph Rudinsky. So, what you're going to do is you're going to take two pieces of paper. They're supposed to be stapled, they're not, but they're kind of separated. So, two pieces of paper so that you get the packet. So,
3: synopsis should be on top, actually. you
2: want this one on top. I want this on top. So you do it on top. I do. Okay. This, your first page should look like this. Your second page should look like this. And I gave you a, an excerpt from a piece by Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson. Going to Mickey's point on the back of your first page, we'll either get to it or you can read it at home. I'm going to start with Rabbi Rudinsky who ties this business of this liturgical statement and this whole business of Kitavo to the High Holidays, asking the question, what is up with this being known in rabbinic tradition, this, this thing we just read, this statement that we just read, is known in rabbinic literature as vidui maaser What is vidui? <laughs> How do you know that, Rita? Because Why do you know that word?
3: Because it's a section of prayer on Yom
2: Kippur. It's the section of prayer on Yom Kippur that is the confession. Isn't it? Where else do we know Vidui? Yes, it's definitely from Slakman Right, It's definitely part of the Vidui. The Vidui is the confession on Yom Kippur. Where else do we see Vidui? When we are dying.
5: Excuse me, God, where,
2: where are we? Well, I'm just talking. I'm just talking. Okay. You, you don't have to be anywhere.
3: Never, never, never. Just, yeah. just you be are. here.
2: are. I tell you one time when my kid was little and they had career day, and they talked to the kids about their parents' careers, and and they said, "So what does your mommy do?" And she says, "My mommy is a rabbi, right?" And so then she came home talking about this, and I said, "So what? So what is? But what did you tell them? What, career day is about what we do. What is a rabbi? What do I do as a rabbi?" And she said, "Talk." <laughs> I said, "Yes." I said, "That's true. I talk." I said, "What else do I do as a rabbi?" She said eat i said you know what that's about it that's truly about it i talk and eat for a living that's not a bad job she didn't say just talk she did not say just talk you talk mommy you eat so vidui confession on yom kippur we have a very long liturgical tradition of vidui of confession we also say it on the deathbed there's a vidui in the rabbi's manual that you say with somebody at the deathbed if they want vidui, if they want the final confession. So vidui means confession. The rabbis call this vidui ma'aser, the confession of the tithe. This whole business we just read about what they, what the person says is vidui ma'aser, the um, confession of tithing. So we're going to look at this piece by Rabbi Radinsky that says, if you look at the paragraph that begins, perhaps oh,
3: that's
2: right after the parenthetical Deuteronomy twenty six thirteen, right? This statement is known as the Vidui Maaser, which means the Confession of Tithes. This seems a very strange confession. There is no admission of sin. There is no statement of sorrow. There's no assertion that it will not be done again. Indeed, this V-doi seems more like a boast, especially since it concludes with, I have obeyed, right? I've done everything that you've commanded me. In other words, God, we've done our part. Now you do your part. We usually think of a confession as what we do on our deathbed or on Yom Kippur when we say, for the sins we have sinned against you, blah, 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 blah. And then we confess something wrong, something we did bad, something we did that we know was not right. How is this then considered a confession? Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik answered this question by pointing out that the root word for confession, the root word for vidui. In Hebrew, is Hoda'ah. Hoda'ah is how we get the word vidui. Hoda'ah means what? Thanks. Means thanks. And? Praise. It can mean praise, which is related to thanks.
4: Admission. admission. Admission.
2: Admission. Hoda'ah has two meanings. In Hebrew, if you go to an etymological dictionary, it will give you both right there. Number one is admission. I admit something. Number two is thanks or praise. Hodu la donai kitov. Let us give thanks to God for God is good. Hodu. Alright. But he's going to go on, of course. There's a deeper... He's not going to just leave us that there's just two meanings, right? God forbid. There's way more here, yes? One is the ability... So there's two parts to change, he's saying. Confession, vidui is all about change. Why would we bother to confess if we're not looking to change it? When we confess on Yom Kippur and we say, I confess that I did wrong by lying, the implication of me doing that is to say, and I want to change that, right? You don't run around going, I just stole something, Mm -hmm. To brag, that makes no sense, right? I wouldn't say, I lied this year, yay me. that That's stupid. That makes no sense. If you say, I lied, the implication is, I'm confessing that out loud so that I can be done with it and move on and change and now be someone who's committed to telling the truth. It's implied in this whole idea of confession, well, if the root of the word for confession, change, the ability to do things differently is hodaa. says Rav Soloveitchik, our beautiful Hebrew language that, of course, is what the universe was created through, so it contains fundamental truths and mystical realities and secrets. Here's one secret. The key to change has two aspects. It has two elements. It's beautiful. Here we go. What are They? One new paragraph, right? You see that paragraph that starts with the word one, one is the ability to be objective about ourselves, to differentiate between rationalization and truth, to look at ourselves square in the eye and acknowledge our faults when we choose to do so. Most of the time, we will not choose to confess because we'd rather cover up and lie even to ourselves. However, if we are really making an effort, we can be honest with ourselves and discern our strong points and our weak points, our faults and our virtues. So that's one requirement is that I admit honestly what, what are my faults? What are my virtues? Not as a way of, oh, I'm so terrible, right? As a way to, to just rationally look at what am I doing okay at? What am I doing nuts so okay? So, okay, at with no ulterior motive other than to truly admit how how I've done wrong or right for that matter. Right. But separating those out. The second requirement is that we must believe that we have the power to change ourselves. So I can admit I've said to some of y'all that now I know from finding my family of origin that there's terrible tempers. In my biological family, these women have terrible tempers. My great grandmother would throw a shoe at you if she was mad, and she always connected.
4: She got the
2: always. Good arm. Good arm. Good eye. Good aim. Good intention of like connecting. So th- we have terrible tempers. Okay. Now I have two choices about I have a terrible temper. I come from a long line of terrible tempers. What are my choices? I can say, it's my genetics. I'm an angry person. Well, no wonder I lose my patience and lean forward and get in people's faces when I talk. What what am I going to do? It's genetic. That's one option. Another option is that I use it. I use that anger to fight for the underprivileged for the silence for the marginalized for what's right and for what's just and for what ought to be and that I fuel all of that righteous indignation into inspiring change right or doing the work of change so Levichik says those are our options you you don't get away with I have a proclivity towards violence he says so become a shaykh become a ritual slaughterer you don't get to say, because I have this tendency that can go in really bad directions, therefore I have no responsibility. I admit that this is who I am. I admit that this is part of who I am. Now my decision is, thank God, in in that admission, I also give praise and thanks that I have a choice about how to direct that tendency. So in the case
6: of anger, that is, that's a, that is a, a failing that one can admit, and if one believes that one is capable of change, that's something that you can rechannel. Yes. But in, a, but in some of the other examples that the rabbi gives, I mean, how would you rechannel stinginess? How would you, you
2: become the treasurer of the congregation. <laughs> He said it, not me. just uh, let's be very clear at the next board meeting, Laura, when it gets out that the rabbi said the treasure was was stingy. Right? No, it's, right on the paper. it's right there on the paper, right <laughs> that you can channel even that. like if I'm somebody who tends to like guard and okay, then that's good, use that suspicion and that, that resistance to spend in a position where it's going to help protect the assets of the synagogue or the community.
3: So, it um, said change ourselves. So, I didn't think, when you said the anger thing, I thought we were going to say get rid of the anger. Instead, you said you know, you're channel change. it. Positive. So, I mean, that that's a, a realistic, productive way to look at things. Usually, when you look at oneself and you see something wrong with yourself, you go, oh, how can I turn it
2: off? Right. So, this is, you know. It's very Jewish to me. Yeah. Right? It's- it's very, you're right. Because a lot of times you say, oh, I tend towards anger, so I'm going to work on being serene. Right. And it's not that that's a bad idea. It's not that you don't do that. But I, I think you're right to lift up that the difference for us, like our, our stance on that is, so just admit that. Admit that you're somebody who is impatient and or gets angry and frustrated easily, and then figure make the decision to use that for the good and to channel that for the good that is very jewish to me. I think you're right that that's different from what we usually think of when we think of change which is why I love this piece so much. So there,
5: there's something I do with a pregnant woman because they're always uh, worried about their bad emotions and I said there's no bad emotions it's some energy. So if like anger what qualities do you need to have to be able to get angry? Because some people they never get angry. They cry instead. So it's a different kind of quality. The quality is like energy, fire. How can you use that? You have a lot of energy. You go running, you you, you know, you, you fight for things, you you know, use that energy. It's not used, that's why it's becoming anger. You know, you turn the thing around.
2: Or someone was just have terrible tempers or some of us just have terrible tempers. Right, so sometimes it's about discerning, right? If sometimes I'm angry because I want to cover the sadness, and it's way easier to feel angry than it is to get at the sadness. So then I have to learn to cry. I have to learn to have the courage to feel the sadness and learn to cry. Okay, that absolutely that is one that's that's change in the way that we usually think about it is I'm I'm going to somehow Change the anger into something else. I think what Dana was saying and what I think is, is a radical Jewish idea is, okay, so you're angry. Use it. Use it exactly. There's no excuse not to use it. And
3: our community gives you examples. That's why, like, do, do one's help this, you can do this. It's like, it, it never stops telling you. The message is always there. It's so Jewish. Uh, on how to be a good person. Our Jewish community is
2: always messaging. 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 So right. So and if you're gonna be angry, what are you angry about? Am I angry that I got disrespected? Because that's one kind of anger. There's another anger that says, I am so angry I'm writing my congressman. Right. Right? Because right. what I'm angry about is the injustice that I see that I participate in, right? That that, that that's what I'm angry about. So part of it is about. Not, not always judging, you know, the actual thing that we tend to judge, but rather channeling it. The other is checking in constantly to make sure whatever's going on for us, that it's about the right stuff. Am I stingy? If I'm stingy, I gotta be really careful. Am I, what am I stingy about? Is it about time is precious to me and I don't wanna waste it? So I want to be sure I'm spending my time on good things and not watching so much television, right? Or am I stingy, meaning I don't have time for you because my time's really important to me and you're not going to get me something I need. You you, you are the I-it relationship. You can't help me get anything. You're worthless to me. I don't have time for you, right? It's the same thing. It it can be flipped, which is, I think, what I love, right? So let's go to where he says in Hebrew thought, the word hoda'ah also means thanks, glorification, and praise. And what he's saying is, if you drop down in that paragraph, that we we don't get anywhere unless we believe that we can progress. Right? Next paragraph, we Jews have always believed that we can change things, which explains why so many Jews belong to do-good organizations. Unfortunately, to change, one must first scathingly examine oneself. Jews are more critical of themselves than any other group. Anybody who reads the Israeli press today cannot help but be overwhelmed by the problems they report. Yet there's a silver lining to this sharp criticism. It arises because we believe in the possibility of improvement we have confidence that we can rectify the problems. If we try to do better, God will help us by enhancing that power. Thus, the Aseretim the ten days of repentance, despite the seeming emphasis on our sins, misdeeds, and failures, is not a period of sadness. In fact, it leads to the holiday of Sukkot, the week of rejoicing. After all, if we so will it, We can be loving spouses, worthy parents and children, warm, considerate friends, and caring community members. And we can be all these things no matter what our proclivities, our character tendencies happen to be. Let us all hope we shall merit a year of health, happiness, prosperity, and self-fulfillment.
3: You've been
0: listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California.